Welcome to Chicago AudioWorks, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. One of the press's most popular books is the Chicago Manual of Style, which we have published since 1906 and which is now in its 15th edition. More than 10 years ago, our manuscript editing department began answering questions about Chicago style in a monthly Q&A feature. You can find it online at chicagomanualstyle.org. The current editor of the Chicago Style Q&A is Carol Fisher-Saller, assistant managing editor at the press. Carol's many years of experience working with authors and their book manuscripts is distilled in her new book, The Subversive Copy Editor, available in bookstores now. Today on the Chicago Audio Works podcast, Carol will answer a few style questions and read from her book. Dear Chicago Style Q&A, we are editing a scientific book. We have to follow UK spelling. Per the dictionary, sulfur with an F is the US spelling, and sulfur with a PH is the UK spelling. But in one chapter, the author has used sulfur with an F, and in another chapter, sulfur with a PH. Since we are following UK spelling, can we change sulfur with an F to sulfur with a PH? Or per the Chicago Manual of Style, since the recommended spelling of the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry is sulfur with an F, irrespective of UK or US spelling, can we change sulfur with a PH to sulfur with an F? Good grief. You can't lose. Just pick one. Who's the boss? When you're faced with a chunk of writing to tame, you sit with your favorite dictionary, words into type, the Chicago Manual of Style or another style guide, and any other references you use to guide your editing. You might sit in an office with six sharpened pencils on your desk, or in a basement room with pizza oozing grease onto the hard copy. You're armed with your own training and inclinations. Maybe your delete key finger is itching to stab at extra that's. Maybe you laser in on punctuation. Or maybe you're the big picture type, ready to put paragraph one at the end and write the opener from scratch. Regardless of your modus operandi, when you start in on the process of reading the words and making editorial decisions, you have in mind at least vaguely and sometimes quite clearly an end product that will take a certain form and meet a certain standard. Not necessarily your own, alas. Rather, you are bound to adhere to the standard set by the person or institution that is producing the work and, need I say, paying you for your time. And that is simply wrong. Don't be alarmed. I'm not going to suggest that you toss out your style book and forget what you know about semicolons and dangling modifiers. On the contrary, I'm going to insist that you know these things inside and out. And no, I don't mean that the person you're ultimately aiming to satisfy is the writer. Who's left? Yourself? Of course not. What I am suggesting is that your first loyalty be to the audience of the work you're editing, that is, the reader. I know you saw that coming. Common sense tells us that working on behalf of the reader is not really such a terribly subversive move. After all, that is the mission of the publisher in the first place, even if only for the obvious reason that pleasing readers sells the book, the magazine, the newspaper. Persuading readers creates business. 
reassuring and impressing readers keeps them coming back. Since most publishers court some variety in their readers, and most institutions create documents for various purposes, it makes sense that editors will have to tailor their efforts accordingly. And when you do that, it's likely that at some point, you're going to have to butt heads with the writer. Indeed, editing for the reader routinely involves questioning established rules of style. How could it not? The style of an article written about the naked mole rat will not be appropriate for one written about, well, copy editors. Although the fundamental elements of well-crafted prose are basically the same for all writing, the details are not. A word like pre-dewatering can be workaday jargon in a memo about waste treatment or a witticism in a poem for the New Yorker. Numbers like 7,362 may look fine spelled out in a novel, but would get out of hand spelled out in a math book. Humor doesn't always fit. Repetition can be necessary for emphasis or organization, or it can just be annoying. But jettisoning a style rule or tenet of good writing doesn't have to mean sacrificing excellence. Rather, it can ensure it. Examples are legion. Here's one. Some style guides dictate that upon first mention, a person be identified by a full name. In news articles, trade books, or school texts destined for readers of mixed abilities and attention spans, the goal is to include the uninitiated and educate them. Adding William to Shakespeare or Margaret to Thatcher isn't likely to insult anyone and will allow a broader base of readers to follow the text without confusion. In specialized or technical documents, however, directed to a narrow group of experts, a writer might prefer the shorthand of the familiar name alone. In an offhand reference to Dante, she doesn't want to waste time writing Alighieri, and a good writer knows she would only patronize readers by belaboring the obvious. Dante will do. Although it's likely that you'll need to tinker with a writer's prose in order to shape it for the intended reader, you shouldn't automatically expect a major overhaul. Although there are always going to be writers who need reminding whom they're writing for, fortunately for you, most writers are likely to be better acquainted than you are with the special readership of their work, and you would do well to think before you mess with their choices. Dear Chicago, is it pre-work or pre-hyphen work, i.e. for work that has to be done before a meeting? Pre-work is a pretty silly concept if you think about it. I mean, is it work or not? It would be like pre-eating. How about calling it preparation? Oh, English language gurus, is it ever proper to put a question mark and an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence in formal writing? This author is giving me a fit with some of her overkill emphases, and now there is this sentence that has both marks at the end. My everlasting gratitude for letting me know what I should tell this person.
In formal writing, we allow both a question mark and an exclamation mark only in the event that the author was being physically assaulted while writing. Otherwise, no. Whose manuscript is it anyway? It's good to assume at the outset that a writer has written with her imagined reader in mind. If your writer is an expert, whatever her specialty, computer technology, poetry, fashion, she'll have been steeping in the jargon of that discipline for a long time, and she's bound to use it knowing that it's the best way to communicate with readers who speak the same dialect. Even if she's only recently researched the subject for a commissioned piece, she probably knows more than you do about it. In that way, the writer has already put her reader first, and now she can reasonably expect the editing process to push her manuscript a little further in the same direction. In her fantasies, your editing will produce a perfect, fascinating work of art. In her nightmares, you will reduce her work to rubble, but never mind that. Considering the responsibility this entails then, let the writer become your second master. One of the most counterproductive assumptions for young editors to make is that they are going to be working against the recalcitrance of writers who are ignorant of the rules. Copy editors are often trained in this attitude. They are taught how to say no to authors, employing the vocabulary of rule enforcement. It's unconventional. It's not our style. It's too expensive. It will cause a delay. Sometimes, as a last resort, we do deploy those weapons. But to see the author-editor relationship as inherently adversarial is to doom yourself to a career of angst and stress. The writer's job is far more difficult than the copy editor's. She has to actually write the thing. It is your privilege to polish a manuscript without the tedium and agony of producing it in the first place. Your first goal isn't to slash and burn your way through in an effort to make it conform to a list of style rules. Your first goal is merely to do no harm. And oh baby, the ways in which we do harm. For every writer with a tin ear who is helped by a competent editor, there is surely an inexperienced editor who will take a fresh and well-voiced text and edit the life out of it. He'll delete every comma that isn't justified in his high school grammar, and he'll put them in where the writer is trying to pick up speed. He will create tortuous constructions to avoid a preposition at the end of a sentence, and he would lay down his life to keep an infinitive intact. For such editors, the task of imposing consistency extends beyond the stylings that give a reader ease and confidence in the writer's authority. These types are obsessed with imposing rules, sometimes rules that are closer to superstitions, that serve only to hamstring the writer and impoverish his prose. It's no wonder that they see the writer as a roadblock on the way to the straightened text they work to achieve. You might think that the overachieving copy editor suffers from knowing too much, but the opposite is true. Knowing too little, she hangs on white-knuckled to her small bag of tricks, unaware of the many alternatives. So the first step in doing no harm is to expand your bag of tricks. A thorough knowledge of the rules and conventions of prose styling will arm you with confidence in choosing the right ones and rejecting the wrong ones. 
There's a difference between the considered breaking of a rule and a failure to observe it out of ignorance. In the former case, you will have a reason and a plan. In the latter, you might just have a mess. You could find yourself blanching at a headline like, quote, press recalls typo-filled book and says it will reprint. So if you aren't trained and confident in at least the basics of copy editing, or if you're charged with following a style guide that you haven't mastered, you can't hope to give the readers what they deserve or gain the respect of your writer. Knowing your stuff, you're ready to serve the reader by working intelligently and sensitively with the writer. When you receive a work ready for copy editing, you, more than anyone else, are in a position to champion the writer and protect her project. Nobody else cares as much as you do about that particular work at that particular time. It's likely that none of your colleagues will read its final version. The editor who acquired it has been there and done that. He's on to courting the next deal. The manager or assigning editor thumbed through it and signed it off to you. The marketer is probably thinking about it as part of a greater plan. The print buyer isn't engaged with its content much at all. Who, if not you, will be the writer's advocate? If there's a problem, if the fiscal year projections can't be revised in time, if a book index is too long, everyone benefits if you are thinking of the project as your own and pushing to get the best of everything for it. Hi, Chicago. My colleagues are divided in their opinions about storing data in a computer versus storing data on a computer, which is correct. You can do either, but I would store the data in the computer. It used to be easy to store stuff on a computer, but now with flat screens and laptops, it tends to slide off. About two spaces after a period. As a U.S. Marine, I know what's right is right, and you are wrong. I declare it once and for all, aesthetically, more appealing to have two spaces after a period. If you refuse to alter your bullheadedness, I will petition the Commandant to allow me to take one Marine detail to conquer your organization and impose my rule. Thou shalt place two spaces after a period. Period. Semper Fidelis. As a United States Marine, you're probably an expert at something, but... I'm afraid it's not this. Status quo. Why we meddle. People uninitiated in the publishing process might be surprised to learn that there is even such a thing as the copy editing stage. Don't writers proofread and polish and revise before the text is even submitted in the first place? Don't acquiring editors critique and send manuscripts to outside readers and push the authors to refine and update on the basis of the feedback? Isn't the darned thing practically perfect by then? Well, no. In academic publishing, a manuscript probably goes through more versions, more outside review, and more refining than any other kind of copy by the time it gets to the copy editor. But even so, when an author and her peers read a manuscript, they tend to focus on the larger picture, the argument, the logic, the organization, and the clarity or accuracy of expression. They will point out misspellings or grammar goofs or inconsistencies if they spot them, but that isn't their mission. 
A manuscript editor keeps an eye on all that, but he is also taking careful notes and cross-checking hundreds of details. He is going to notice that footnote 43 cites page 12 of a particular article, whereas the bibliography entry for that article indicates that it begins on page 22. He's recording in his style sheet that Edward Mulholland appears on page 51 and is going to be suspicious when Edwin Mulholland pops up on page 372. He's the one who will find three different spellings of Tchaikovsky and that chapter 3 is titled The Untruth of the Gaze in the Table of Contents but the Untrue Gaze at the chapter's opening. In other kinds of publishing, copy will come to you having undergone much less scrutiny than a book manuscript. A news story may have been madly typed that morning by a stringer on the train into the office. Your boss could hand you a letter to potential donors written with a sharpie on the wrapper from her lunch burrito. You may have to start with larger tasks of rewriting before moving on to the finer points of spelling, punctuation, and internal consistency. Now, I know there are readers among you, maybe those who are only just beginning to contemplate work as a copy editor, who are wondering, how much does any of this really matter? The publishers who hire copy editors obviously believe that it matters a lot. It matters because inaccuracies and inconsistencies undermine a writer's authority, distract and confuse the reader, and reflect poorly on the company. If a page number in the table of contents is wrong, the data in table four is just as likely to be wrong. If Goran Vishnich's name is misspelled, who's going to believe that he actually gave the interview? Discriminating readers look for reasons to trust a writer and reasons not to. Inelegant expression and carelessness in the details are two reasons not to. The copy editor's job, then, is to ferret out the remaining infelicities in a manuscript. We do this in order to help the writer forge a connection with the reader based on trust. Trust that the writer is intelligent and responsible and that her work is a reliable source. We do it to help craft an article that pleases, a report that allows the reader to coast along through its ideas without slowing for red lights at every corner. And we do it don't we? Because we derive satisfaction and pride from knowing how. I'm writing a novel. How do I write the title of a song in the body of the work? Caps? Bold? Underline? Italics? Example. The zombie she's not there looped in his head. No, now that song is looping in my head. Use quotation marks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Carol Fisher Saller's book, The Subversive Copy Editor, is published by the University of Chicago Press and available in fine bookstores everywhere. For more about this book and our other books, visit our website at www.press.uchicago.edu. Carol has her own website at www.subversivecopyeditor.com. This has been an episode of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. 
Additional episodes of Chicago AudioWorks are available from iTunes and other podcast aggregators. Your comments and questions about this podcast are always welcome. The podcast email address is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening. Oh, no. <laughs> what made you pick my... that song out of any song in the world? <laughs> was that was that you who picked that song? No, oh, somebody wrote it to the Q and A. Oh, that, that's that's the that's the. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah we don't make anything up. <laughs>